1: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkwaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tony Stewart, who is Gertrude uh, uh, Conway uh, Vanderbilt Chair in Humanities uh, at Vanderbilt University. Uh, he, he's now an emeritus professor, and we'll be speaking about a fascinating uh, work that he's done, two works, in fact, that are interrelated. Uh, One is Witness to Marvel's uh, Sufism and Literary Imagination that is available open access uh, uh, um, from the University of California Press. the link is in the podcast notes and uh, a related uh, translation of the work she analyzes in that work um, called Needle at the Bottom of the Sea, Bengali Tales from the Land of the Eighteen Tides. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. So um, one thing worth mentioning at the outset is that this uh, your witness to marvels um, has been recognized. It was the recipient um, of the Anand Kentish uh, Kumar Book Prize, awarded by the Association for Asian Studies. Was it not? Yes, it was. <laughs> well, it must be uh, some book. <laughs> so tell us a little. <laughs> tell us a little bit about. Um, the backstory and your interest in this area.
0: Yeah, actually, th- th- this book, uh, Witness to Marvels, actually pulls together um, decades of work uh, that I had not uh, even imagined when I started my academic career. Uh, when I was doing my dissertation uh, back in the uh, early 80s, uh, I kept running across uh, all these references to a figure named uh, Satyapir, or in Bengali, Shattopir, And this figure uh, was supposed to be uh, uh, Krishna or Narayan and uh, a Sufi saint uh, combined into a single figure. And in some versions was actually considered to be uh, Krishna and Muhammad or Krishna and uh, Narayana and Allah. Now, what was confusing about this is that I couldn't find anything in the secondary literature about this figure. And I mean, very, very little, just brief mentions. But I found over 800 manuscripts and about 150 printed texts by well over 100 authors. And I realized that this was one of the uh, hidden gems, I guess you would call it, of uh, uh, early modern Bengali literature. And I was astonished that uh, nothing had been uh, written about it. In spite of the fact that obviously Shatupir had a massive following. So that intrigued me enough to start pursuing uh, the lives of the what I've come to call the fictional peers. And uh, I call them fictional because they're not found in any of the historical records, the Persian court records, or any of those uh, related uh, documents. Um, And uh, yet they're widely popular uh, all over Bengal for four or five centuries now.
1: You know, um, I find your project fascinating on a number of levels, and I cover a number of projects and different sorts of methods. Uh, I happen to um, study narrative um, in in my own scholarly life. Right. And there's a a really um, significant concept in your very subtitle that. Folks, I think, sometimes underestimate. You know, the power of narrative um, is far more profound and pervasive and evocative than its historical veracity, mm-hmm. right? And so, what is this? What is this literary imagination that you talk about?
0: Well, I, one of the one of the issues um, is uh, the when I have mentioned these tales to others, when I've talked to other scholars in Bengal and Bangladesh um, about them. Uh, And in the few references that you'll find to them, uh, they're always classified as folk tales or old wives tales or something like that. And by classifying them that way, just by giving them that that, you know, genre uh, moniker, it has a tendency to dismiss them as any they're not serious, in other words, and What I found was they're doing uh, because they're fictions they're doing a very different kind of work than say the lives of the saints this you know the great Sufi masters uh, or the lives of Muhammad you know the the I mean not lives in plural but the life of Muhammad um, because they're they're introducing uh, concepts into Bengal Uh, that previously hadn't been there. I mean, Islam came into Bengal, now it's been in Bengal for centuries, but when it first arrived, uh, these stories had a way of making Islam familiar and making it natural to a Bengali environment. Uh, And so in this sense, they sort of uh, uh, make people comfortable with the cosmology of Islam uh, with some of the key figures. And yet at the same time, they're not uh, overt theological uh, documents. They're not uh, trying to uh, establish some kind of Sharia-based orientation, but rather they are telling stories about figures uh, that that make Islam uh, uh, comfortable in a Bengali environment. In fact, to the point where Islam in Bengal now is Bengali, there's no question about it. At the same time, these stories, while uh, introducing uh, Islamic ideas uh, into uh, the environment, they um, they also wrote Bengal uh, into the larger Islamic literature. Uh, it, so it goes both ways. It's not just coming into Bengal, but it's writing Bengal into uh, the larger Islamic world. And I think that's part of the power of the fiction. Whereas the you know, a, an overt theological uh, proposition would not do that in the same way. So uh, it connects uh, in a completely different discursive realm than um, um, what we're normally thinking of as mainstream Islam. Um,
1: my primary teaching these days is um, continuing studies, um, and uh, so often I, I, I when teaching uh, the content of a particular narrative, whether it's an the vignette from the Mabharata or the, the Devi Mahatmya, you know, talking about the power of storytelling, I often think of it as, well, stories teach you when you least expect it and they do the heavy lifting of theology and philosophy, but in such an unassuming manner. And I think perhaps um, a, a more ancient uh, Sanskritic analog to this very phenomenon is the Puranas themselves dismissed mm-hmm. for for decades and now, you know, over a century as in, as sort of debased uh folktales uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, brahmanical conceits but there's so much there because they're sort of slipping beneath the radar of the discursive um engagement of the of yeah. the discursive engagement and they're penetrating culture uh, they're thereby i think on such a more widespread and perhaps uh, long-lived uh, manner now in terms of th- this gold mine that you came across <laughs> that's that <laughs> is what it is <laughs> um, what is um uh, literally remarkable about it what is what is unique about it why is it so significant
0: well uh, there's a number of things but um the first item <clears throat> the first uh, approach that i took to try and and understand what was going on with this literature or rather not what was going on with the literature, but what was going on with the scholarship that refused to acknowledge this literature. And I relied on, um, I I ran across uh, in in some ways quite by accident, um, uh, an article uh, on agnotology, which is uh, in social scientific terms or humanistic terms, it, it, it tends to be uh, your inability to see something because of the categories uh, of knowledge that you have been operating with. And in this case, uh, if the, it, as soon as you classify something in a genre, uh, it disappears. In the case. So I, I started uh, looking uh, at it as an issue of our ignorance of what was right in front of our noses. Now, one of the reasons for this is because today uh, in the political climate of India and and Bangladesh, the last couple of centuries, actually a century and a half, let's say, um, the uh, Hindu-Muslim relationship has been assumed to be uh, a negative relationship, that it's fraught with all kinds of conflict and that kind of thing, and that they're mutually exclusive communities. Uh, what was so obvious and here's where agnotology plays a role. What was so obvious was that they weren't uh, that they were not uh, mutually exclusive in the way that we think of them today in this early modern period. And so, you know, we end up um, looking at these uh, these texts, and it was saying very clearly Shatapir is half Muslim half Hindu and and Hindus and Muslims both worshipped this figure. Uh, they they offer the shirni, which is a very simple little offering of uh, rice powder and and uh, sweet. Uh, and so, uh, how is that? I mean, it's so obvious that it's it's breaking down this stereotype, and yet we we fail to recognize it. And so, um, I started really looking at ways to talk about uh, the Hindu Muslim interaction in this early modern period um without having to refer to hindus and muslims uh, as nouns that made me start looking at rather than what the texts are rather to look at what the texts are trying to do what do they do yeah yeah so i mean it's a in a way it's just a restatement of the old form and function Um, people were so caught up on the form that they failed to see what the texts were actually doing the function of the text and so that really opened up um, uh, a lot of uh, avenues for inquiry. The other thing was uh, just the use of the terms. I started trying to find a way, rather than talking about Hindus and Muslims uh, as nouns, uh, rather looking at these figures <clears throat> as adjectives, Hinduani, uh, And And when you start doing that, uh, it really radically changes how you uh, read a text, so you you eliminate those large categories, instantiated categories that are exclusive. Um, so, uh, and in fact, one of the ways this started, um, I was looking at a figure uh, whose most famous stories found in Brenda Bondash's Chaitanya Bhagavat, which is a Gordia Vaishnava text, and he was a, a Muslim, Jabon uh, Hordidas. Uh, Yavana Hardidas uh, and Hardidas uh, was a Sufi, and he was practicing uh, chanting the name. In fact, he demonstrated to the community how to chant the name best. And so he was a he was a Sufi practicing Krishna zikr. And I, you know, as I'm as I'm encountering this figure, and I'm actually working on a book right now, uh, uh, a small book, mind you, but a book on uh, uh, Jabuna Hardidas. Uh, it made me realize that if you, you know, I've got a Muslim acting like a Vaishnava or a Hindu, but rather than calling him uh, a, even a Sufi, what I started doing is that, what if I did a little exercise here? And every time I saw the word jabun, which is Yavana, which is usually, it means foreigner. It, well, technically from Sanskrit, it means I, uh, Ionian, a uh, Greek, but someone who's not from here, Uh, And in this case, um, almost always the Yavan or Javan wears a hat and a beard. So I started translating the stories, talking about the man with the hat and the beard rather than a a Muslim. And it was magical the way the story changed. And uh, so, again, another example of how our categories completely blind us sometimes to uh, what should be obvious, but uh, isn't always
1: it's so resonant, so brilliant. In my, in my own personal sort of spiritual life, I've met a number of masters mm. and, and trained for years on and off, many of whom were what we would think of uh, um, uh, 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 from the edic perspective, uh, tantricas or, or practicing mm. some form of tantra. None of them would ever use that word. Mm. None of us use that word. It, it's, not some, it's not something that's identified with. Mm-hmm. And yet um, through the scholarly mind without question uh, those practitioners would have been tantrikas mm-hmm. yeah, and so it's utterly fascinating and, and what uh, the turn that you're you're making uh, it, it, you're illumining in the text the absence of an essentialization that yes. we that we have grown so fond of both as scholars and as and as folks in our uh, our, our historical epoch Yes, and so, so it's sort of like what comes to mind, um, it's like there's certain uh, uh, verbs in English where I am afraid, I I am hungry, but in other languages like French, you, you use the verb to have. I have fear, I have hunger. They're transitory. This is something I'm doing or that's happening yes. in this moment, but it's not what I am. And I think, um, I think it's fascinating that shift is not just a corrective to perhaps the way we study and think performing scholarship, but more importantly, it seems to be in, um, one that aligns with and therefore illumines the the textual world, the world Mm -hmm. within the text. Mm -hmm. Um, why is the book called witness to marvels?
0: (laughs) Well, it's, uh, I mean, the stories themselves are marvelous by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, they are filled with, uh, you know, Sufi saints who can transmogrify into giants. In fact, on the cover Uh, And there's actually, um, uh, that's a a bit of a tease, because on the cover, we have this giant black uh, ogre-like figure uh, towering over a um, very well-dressed man who's carrying a sword and and appears to be royalty. Uh, And it turns out that uh, the black figure is the good guy. Uh, That is Shatopir who has been transmogrified into this, uh, has been shapeshifted shifted himself into this uh, a monstrous figure to scare this king who was persecuting uh, uh, the Supi folk and peers. And he didn't want to kill him, but he's wanted to scare him to death. And so he does. So, uh, yeah, the, there's, uh, you know, there's uh, nymphs who fly uh, figures from one place to another. They magically go underground to these. Uh, magical kingdoms, um, and they have, uh, armies of tigers and crocodiles. In fact, one of my favorite stories, and I've translated the full, and so, uh, uh, in, uh, Needle at the Bottom of the Sea, the Rai Mungle, um, tells the, the story of, uh, Borukhan Gaji and, and uh, Dokin Rai battling out, and, um, uh, they end up, uh, you know, in a, in a huge, um, uh, sort of uh, monstrous uh, conflict, but it's not over religion, uh, as you as it's usually talked about, because it's a Hindu and a Muslim. It's over the fact that one of them was insulted by the other. Uh, a devotee had not paid proper respects, and so they sick each other's armies of tigers on one another, and then finally they're down to just the two of them. In a second story, in the in the Gajikalu uh, Ochampavati uh, Konar Punti, the, the uh, story of, of uh, Borakan Gaji takes a different turn. And there he has an army of tigers, but uh, Dokin Rai um, is uh, uh, protecting the princess that that Gaji wants to marry. And so he goes and petitions the goddess to Ganga to give him uh, an army of uh crocodiles, and so they battle it out. And uh, on the one hand, these are very humorous stories uh, because both sides are complaining bitterly about all the suffering and so forth, their broken teeth and claws and so forth. But but these marvelous encounters uh, that we see over and over and over again in these tales, and uh, that's part of the entertainment value. And I think that's one reason why they are, um, I think, misconstrued as just simple folk tales. Um, but they are truly marvelous. And that was easy to come up with that title, I have to say. Hmm.
1: Fascinating. What would you say is the primary argument or ideal takeaway from this monograph?
0: Well, first of all, uh, since none of the stories had ever been uh, analyzed, um, I, I retold the stories and translated portions in the monograph. Um And I felt that we first had to establish that there were fictions. Uh, And I used some of the, you know, uh, tried and true techniques for that uh, literary critical techniques that have been uh, sort of circulating for decades. Um, And, and, you know, in in a sense, a rather uh, simplistic approach, but since it hadn't been done, I really had been receiving a lot of pressure from people about calling these things fictions. Um, They didn't want to call them myths, but they also didn't want to call them fictions. And I felt that uh, I had to demonstrate that they were. But fictions have certain features. And one of them that I am following Masheri here and several other literary uh, theorists, that they don't articulate overt theology, because if they do, they become religious propaganda and cease to be fictions. And in these tales, you never get any kind of uh, preaching. You don't get any kind of philosophical arguments about the nature of reality, or or what constitutes salvation, or or even basic instruction in Sharia uh, or anything like that. Um, and so there there's a nod to it in the sense that you'll get a, a, an oblique reference. Uh, And that really sets these things apart. Now, if you look at some of the historical figures in the same time period, uh, there's most definitely theological and uh, uh, content based on proper uh, conduct and so forth. So uh, that was the first thing. And the second thing is, how do we uh, deal with characters that are they're producing new stories about these characters over a period of centuries. And the same sets of characters keep showing up in all of these, uh, tag. And it turns out there's about seven or eight characters that are almost interchangeable in, in these tales. And how do we account for that? And then I, so I wanted to look at uh, how it was possible that these tales could continue to be productive uh, and new. Uh, in each generation. And so I borrowed um, uh, a an idea, uh, which I had been working on for many years, but I finally articulated it as uh, the stories, uh, what are the conditions of existence uh, that, that allow the story to come into existence? And that's the imaginaire, uh, what I've called the imaginaire. Now I have to distinguish that from other people's use of imaginal and imagination and imaginaire, but uh, there are um, uh, four features of this arena, this discursive arena I call the imaginaire, and these four features really help to delineate uh, the conditions under which the story emerged, and uh, two of them are presuppositions and two of them uh, are intertextualities. So uh, obviously, no text comes into existence ex nihilo. So uh, it has it, it, conversation partners. Uh, and the, sometimes the intertextualities are overt uh, and they're named. We know exactly you know, who, what's being invoked, say you know, the uh, Bhagavata Purana or the Quran or something like that. Other times it's assumed they're covert. They're not actually named. Uh, but you need to know. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a, for instance, if you look, there's a whole lot of, uh, of poetry um, in uh, like, you know, in, in European countries where, in those literatures, where if you don't know the Bible, then you miss a huge portion of the illusions that are in, the, even though they're not overtly stated. So that's the kind of, of covert uh, intertextuality that's present. Then on the presuppositional level, uh, I looked at two things. One is, um, what are the uh, logical presuppositions? That is, in this discourse, what counts as a valid argument, for instance? Uh, How can we draw um, a a proper inference from what's being uh, proposed? So there are rules of discourse that um, are built into the text that have to be isolated. And then there's there are pragmatic concerns, uh, which are things like the the genre um, that, that it takes, the language that's used. Um, and I wanna come back to language because this is really critical to my whole approach. Um, and you can identify then these, if you just identify those four factors, you actually have a pretty good sense of how a text was possible. And what what were its interlocutors? Um, and um, so ultimately, I'm looking at how this literature uh, came into existence and how it interacts with the environment that it's in, that it comes out of. And uh, when it's all new, uh, we've not seen any of this before. And so that uh, to me, that was the real. Uh, interest it was in tracing that and you know ultimately it's a kind of semiotic approach because uh, you know I use some of those uh, techniques and the, the book actually builds in semiotic terms uh, to a kind of final uh, look at Satyapir who has the biggest literature so
1: yeah it's fascinating um, the, the, your use of the imagination it reminds me very much of um, Umberto Recco Mm. He's he's the primary theorist I typically look at in spaces where I need to articulate a methodology mm-hmm. uh, for reading texts and and this this simple but profound idea that texts are crafted with a model reader in mind, mm. consciously or unconsciously there's a, there's a model reader that is implied by the very existence of the text yes and that there are certain suppositions uh, of a threshold of awareness where cultural awareness intellectual awareness etc cetera, etc. Cetera, and that, um, um, that interplay is crucial. And, and, and so much of what you say reminds me of, of that idea in terms of what is, this, what is expected, the, what is the sort of audience that this text expects? Mm-hmm. And therefore, we can, we can learn about the world behind the text actually from the world within the text. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, fascinating. I might be a bit biased, but <laughs> <that's been> fascinating. <laughs> um, so, then just drive home. You you've talked about in, in passing, but drive home the the uh, what I would think of as maybe the sort of methodological intervention or innovation. Like w- what what is new or novel or, or notable about the methodology of the book?
0: Well, apart from, uh, I mean, I'm I'm a throwback in a sense because I was trained uh, as a structuralist, and then semiotics was really central to what I do and still do. Um, all of my work has been permeated by that. So, in that sense, it's not so much new. It's just that people haven't uh, thought about these kinds of texts in these terms. But there, there is a, a one issue that I've, um, I, I'll have to say, I've almost become militant about. And that is um, how I handle the language. Um, uh, there's, there's two parallel things here. One is I made a commitment when I was uh, just starting back in the seventies, uh, when I was at Chicago and learning Bangla and, and really looking at the way the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations was approaching uh, area studies. And I made a commitment then that I would not only uh, analyze text historically or you know, through literary critical tools or whatever, but that I would try to make texts available for people so that they could see for themselves exactly what I was talking about. I mean, it's one thing to, to talk about a text uh, and you can do that uh, with a lot of Western literature because the texts are out there and people know them. Uh, and you don't have to uh, retell the stories and so forth, but here, particularly with stories that are are not known widely outside of Bengal, uh, for me to simply analyze them uh, without uh, some kind of intervention with respect to translation, um, uh, you know, was uh, well, I just felt like it would it, people would, in some cases, probably wouldn't even believe what I was saying. And let me give you an example. Um, I, tr- I try to maintain the transliterations of words in Bengali that have come in from, say, Persian or Arabic. Um, I, I try to maintain them in their Bengali forms. And, you know, so, for instance, uh, Allah. Now, in, uh, you know, almost everybody who works on the Sufis would, would uh, spell that, a L L long A H okay, and so Allah, but the problem is, is in Bengali you can't uh, you can't produce that sound. If I were to uh, transliterate the Bengali, it would be pronounced Ola, and I'm sorry, the the God of of Islam is not (laughs) going to be, you know, understood very well as Ola, particularly given all the, you know, uh, in an English-speaking environment, what that invokes. So then Bengali has to say, because they can't produce that uh sound, they have to produce Allah. Now, for a lot of of purists who work in Arabic and Persian, Allah is an abomination. Um, And they say, you know, you should change it to the regular spelling, but if I do that I've actually made a decision about the content of that particular expression. The semantic field of the Bengali Allah, I argue, is not the same as the semantic field of the Persian or Arabic uh, equivalent. And uh, for instance, uh, and it really hit home uh, as I was translating a very obscure text one time, which is actually in Witness to Marvels, um, Allah is cruising around the heavens in a Viman, a biman, which is an aerial car. And he's he's cruising and he looks down and he sees a problem. And he calls on one of the Supis who are in heaven, Behesht, and he says, go down and, and fix this. Now, I, I have not encountered, <laughs> and maybe it's my own ignorance here, and my, my failure to have read widely enough, but I do not encounter images of the Persia-Arabic uh, version of God uh, cruising the heavens in a beamon. So that means then that the semantic field of Allah is actually different. They don't map one for one. Now, they, they have obvious reference and i think anybody who is a, a perso-arabic specialist or is familiar with the you know more mainstream islam would understand that allah was uh in somehow related to uh the perso-arabic god but but in fact uh if i write that um you know as they do in perso-arabic transliteration then we have uh i'm misleading uh and then there's really going to be issues uh, so By doing the Bengali um, and keeping those transliterations, see they've transliterated it from Persian and mainly Persian actually, and some Arabic into Bangla. Then by, by reproducing the Bangla, I preserve some of the changes that happen. And I'm sorry, religious traditions change as they move from region to region, as they change their languages. And that goes back to my imaginary The language here is Bangla, it is not Arabic, it's not Persian, it's not Turkish, it's not some other uh, language. Now there's also a lot of Sanskrit that comes through uh, as well and that gets a similar kind of treatment. So really the language uh, I think has to be preserved to sort of uh, wake up the reader, that we're not talking about the same world here, we're talking about a distinctly Bengali world and i think when we when we recognize that then we read the stories differently or at least we were open to options that maybe we wouldn't have uh, had had we you know put it all back into proper um uh, you know persian or arabic and and actually there's a there's a flip side to this uh, that led me to to this decision that i think is very important um I've worked for years and years and years in the uh, British Library and the old print catalogs from the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, take Bengali uh, texts and they put them, the titles, they transliterate back into what they think must have been the Persian or the Arabic which means that if you don't know Persian and Arabic and you don't know what to look for, you will never find these old Bangla texts about Muslims. And they've just disappeared. And I think part of it is the cataloging. And here we go back again to the structures of our knowledge, hiding what should have been obvious. Uh, I I continue to find texts in that library, that I had read over before because I I was unable to connect that Persian or Arabic with the with the Bengali. So like I said, I become almost militant here. Uh, I don't I don't want to beat it to death, but it's really central to my whole approach of trying to capture the Bengali ness, if there is such a concept, uh, of these texts uh, as opposed to slotting them into our preconceived categories
1: i've said this before and i'll say this again really <laughs> in studying pretty much all things in dick the, the the data will will transform your theory as you go it, it'll have to it'll, it'll have exactly. to because it's, it's, be, otherwise it's incommensurate. <laughs> you have no option um uh Tell us a bit more about needle at the bottom of the sea, the sorts of stories that it contains, or um, something about your your choices. Uh, perhaps even um, perhaps even share um, a story or two, or an idea that uh, that stayed with you, or that was mm-hmm. most remarkable.
0: Yeah, well, the the uh, the stories um, four of the stories play a pretty major role. In the uh, Witness to Marvels, but in in Witness to Marvels, I was unable to to include the full story. Um, and as I said, I have this commitment to to making texts available so people can see for themselves; uh, they don't have to take my word for it that Allah cruises around in the heavens in a in a beam on when they see the translation. So that was part of the part of the uh, logic behind it. But I also find that these stories. Um, when you actually start looking at the nature of the language, the nature of expression, uh, they're actually considerably more sophisticated than most people are aware of. And I took the three uh, most prominent stories, which all feature uh, the same characters, uh, or, or most of the same characters. Um, Gaji, uh who is the Sufi saint, uh, uh Doking Rai, who is uh actually a godling he is in the lineage of shiva uh, and uh has you know all kinds of powers and is is the original ruler of the Shundurban uh mangrove swamps and then uh, bonbibi story which is the latest of the three well now the first story the rai Mongol, um has uh the probably the most one of the most famous uh, uh tales buried within it. There's three, story, three major stories within it. And that is the conflict between Bortokan Gaji and Dokin Rai over the insult. Uh, ultimately, um, as they fight, they, uh, they slay one another simultaneously. So they're both dead. Uh, but Bordakan Gaji had received a boon from Muhammad that uh, when he was killed, he would instantly pop back to life, which he did. Uh, Whereas uh, Dokin Rai, uh, the Hindu godling, required the intervention of uh, God to uh, be brought back to life. Now, who's this God? The God is Satyapir, Shatopir, who comes in. He's got a Bhagavad Purana in one hand and a Quran in the other. (laughs) And he he starts, and he, he brings, uh, uh dokinrai back to life and then he chides these two for the silliness of their conflict um and and what I found and just as an aside I find in all these stories the conflict is almost never religious. It's about uh is your daughter eligible to marry my son uh you know who's going to collect the money off of the tolls uh you know and and issues of uh, of uh hubris, where somebody's been insulted and they have to make amends and so forth. So the conflict is actually in a very different vein. So in this story, uh, and, and this is one of my favorite moments in all of these tales, Shotopir has just brought uh, Do King Rai back to life and the two of them are standing there. All of their tiger armies are decimated and, and they're brought back to life. And the lead tiger, Dog Khan, Shatopir stops chiding the two men, turns to Daoud Khan and he says to him, in a decade, your uh, cubs are probably not going to be able to find enough food to eat because humans are intruding on the Shunderban and laying waste to the environment. Now this is uh, uh, 1690. Okay, <laughs> and so it, it, you talk about a prescient observation and, and uh, of course, it, as we know, it is coming true as the Shandarban are being uh, decimated by all the human activity. But this, this captures uh, this need for there to be a balance between humans and the uh, you know animal world and between the different types of humans that, that, that life is too tough for people to be in conflict you have to pull together and um you know it sounds like uh, i mean it, it's a kind of covert moralizing uh it sounds more overt when you talk about it like that but the way it's written up it's a real subtle message that finally sort of seeps through and and that message actually comes through all of the stories and i that that signaled and that's the earliest of these three major texts. Um, and, and that, that signaled um, one of the underlying themes. Um, and sure enough, it plays out. Uh, and I chose these stories because they are the most popular of the, of the set, uh, although I did not translate, uh, in the case of the uh, story of Champavati, I did not translate the one that is most widely circulated for uh, literary reasons, the the version I translated I felt was uh, uh, a little better as a as a piece of literature. So anyway, these these three stories, and then finally the story of Quadjikizir, uh, uh, who is the um, only Quranic figure in this set. Quadjikizir is the uh, mentor of all the great Sufi saints, and it, it starts with uh, Musa with Moses. And this is the story out of the Quran, uh, told for the first time in Bengali uh, about Musa's instruction by Kwajah Kizr. But now all the other characters are also instructed by Kwajah Kizr in this uh, set. So that binds them together. And by the way, I did that translation with Ayesha Arani, uh, who uh, had been working on the Nobi show, which is the text it came out of, and has produced a fabulous monograph um, that Oxford has published.
1: Fascinating indeed. Um, well, thank you for making this available to the English-speaking world. Um, before we close for today, was there anything else uh, uh, about either work that you wanted to touch on, hope we touch on? Uh,
0: I, I think um, what it does, What the, the two books in a way Um, are the end result of what I've been doing uh, for the last four and a half decades um, as a a scholar of of Bengal. I I started actively translating uh, back in the 70s and uh, have been doing it ever since, but uh, it's it, the questions I was asking in my earlier work about the the uh, Gordia movement, the life of Chaitanya, the the hagiographies uh, was what kind of work do do hagiographies perform, uh, and that's a much more overt uh, and well known category in the study of religion. And then it made me realize once I stumbled onto these uh, additional, this trove, as you put it, these the, of these texts, this, um, that we needed a, a different approach. So it's all, it, I don't normally use the word organic, but in fact, each, each book has come out of what I had done previously in a very um, surprisingly consistent way. And in this sense, I feel like uh, now I'm actually going to return uh, to the Vaishnava materials with fresh eyes after 40 years or 30 years and, uh, and take a new look and do more translation um, of uh, some of those uh, things and, and just see um, if maybe um, the work on the peers, the fictional material, might make us read those other narratives just a wee bit differently.
1: Fantastic. Well, we'll have to have you back. <laughs> when you turn, whenever you churn out um, uh, that work with these, uh, uh, these enriched set of eyes. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: You're most welcome. Uh, for those listening, we've been speaking uh, to Dr. Tony Stewart about a fascinating open access publication called Witness to Marvel's Sufism and Literary Imagination. Um, the work, the, the primary text that he analyzes in that work are also published um, as a, a, a translation project. Links for both are available in the podcast. Uh, until next time, keep well, keep listening, and keep reading and keep contemplating the power of stories and assuming. take care.